1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect podcast where we speak to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridge, I'm the editor at Prospect and today I'm delighted to be joined by one of Prospect's contributing editors, Matt Dankono, who's an award-winning journalist author, editor of The Spectator, and former deputy editor of The Sunday Telegraph. And today we're going to be discussing the cover story that Matt wrote for the most recent issue of Prospect, how centrism became a bad joke, which reflects on how political centrism died in the 2010s, and what it might take to revive it. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So Matt, one of the reasons I thought this might be an interesting piece for you to write is that when I first knew you, I thought of you as a person of the right. You were the editor of The Spectator, Journal of the Right, Sunday Telegraph, Journal of the Right. And yet, I suspect a lot of your old friends now see you as dangerously of the left. so pra- Practically woke. Uh, um. Practically. The, has the world changed or have you changed? Um
2: well I think I I'm sure I've changed. I mean I think it's um it's it's pretty poor if as a journalist you don't undergo some change over the decades because the world changes around you and the the problems of the world change. So I'm I'm sure I've changed. Um but there's no doubt that you're right. I mean when we first knew each other I probably would have called myself center right and the people I kind of knew and and talked to for column writing purposes particularly were the people who later became the conservative modernizers and in many respects they were they were uh, disciples of Tony Blair you know they they'd seen the power of a, a sort of centre left settlement and how electorally appealing it was and they wanted to steal some of that magic for a conservative party that was regarded as harsh uncaring uninterested in the lives of the the less well-off. And out of that came, first of all, Michael Portillo's failed leadership bid, and then David Cameron's successful leadership bid, and eventually his coalition government. And that that described a sort of era in conservative politics where it seemed to me it was a, a you know, I, I work on the basis that it's a good thing to have as many sane parties around as you can. And so as much as... People look back on the Cameron era now as as a disappointment in many respects. At least, you know, it tried to engage with environmentalism, equality of marriage and so on. But that all changed dramatically with the rise of the UK Independence Party, the rise of Europe and the response to the financial crash in 2008, 2009, which we can perhaps go and talk about. And this completely changed, not just the Conservative Party in this country, but the right around the world, and indeed the left. So this centre ground upon which um, politics had really clustered in the 90s with Tony Blair's Third Way and Bill Clinton's Vital Centre and even the sense that kind of was encapsulated in Francis Fukuyama's end of history theory that we were heading towards a a happy compromise between social uh, justice and liberal democracy was just thrown out and we entered a kind of m- much more volatile much more polarized period of politics which t- we're still in I think and uh, technology played a massive part in that but so too did the issues that were prevalent in people's minds and I think centrists the, the train rather left the station actually and 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 it's we're still in catch-up mode on that
1: I mean you begin your essay by talking about how centrism is almost a joke now I mean you say the trainless it was being left behind but it's almost an easy way for for comedians to get jokes the centrist tags are, are, are figures of humor it, it's happened at a remarkably quick time it has I mean um
2: I, I you know I, I, my first child was born in 2001 and I would have declared myself proudly a centrist dad then and now it's it is a punchline and I think that tells us a lot about where politics is at the moment. Um, cent- centrism is seen as a loser's creed. And I think part of that is it's a very strong association in the popular imagination with the Remain campaign of 2016, which, like it or not, failed and failed badly. And And centrism has become, in this country in particular, associated with that indelibly. And, and so to talk about being a centrist leads almost immediately and slightly wearily to discussion of Brexit uh, rather than all the other aspects of centrism that one might enumerate
1: and it, we, we should remind ourselves that there are still centrists around I mean I, I guess Starmer would call himself a centrist yeah. Biden would Macron might
2: but not as a badge of honor I mean this is the interesting difference is that you go back to the Clinton Blair ascendancy in the the 90s and it was it was a something that people proclaimed you know they were they were in the center ground and that was where you should be. Um, Now to be a centrist is is something a little bit more uh, people are a bit more (laughs) recessive about it and uh, it's it's not something that many people talk about very much. Uh, I, I struggle to find quotations from Starmer for example who is as you say undoubtedly a centrist if he's anything describing himself as such it's interesting
1: can we just before we go forward go a bit further back to you quote Harold Macmillan his book the middle way published first in 1938 reissued in 1966 I mean, a lot of people read that and are quite surprised at a leading conservative politician who became prime minister at a quite radical Center-left ideas, almost, but it was Thatcher the the standout exception to a general rule of centrism since the war.
2: Well, what happened, I suppose, was that after the war, um, given the the horrors of the war and specifically the atrocities of Auschwitz and the the, the carnage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was a natural uh, taste for moderacy decency internationalism the rule of law so there was a kind of centrist um temperament then and also uh, immediately after the war there was a, the cold war which was another binary between two very different economic and political systems and um this was a you know a, a nuclear armed um conflict and one where to be a centrist, as Macmillan was, um, had a great appeal because the point Macmillan makes in that book is, you know, conservatives of his stamp don't choose between social justice and capitalism. They they insist upon finding a happy mean. And that that had appeal on the right, the centre-right, but it also had appeal on the left, centre-left, um... That said, Thatcher was in a way a kind of um, massive disruptor of what had become quite a cosy consensus, so-called named after <coughs> named after Rab Butler, a former Tory education secretary, and Hugh Gateskill, um former Labour leader. And along came uh, Thatcher and said, no, this consensus is leading us as a nation into perdition and we need to be um doctrinally clearer and stronger and less um inclined to split the difference uh intellectual guru keith joseph um actively resisted the phrase the center ground and preferred what he called the common ground which i think meant the the sort of inherited values of the nation um and Thatcher changed everything. And it's in a sort of almost a redundant thing to say. It's so obvious. One of the things it did was she did was um force a split in the Labour Party between um those who believed that socialism was still the answer and um famously the Gang of Four, uh Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, Bill Rogers and David Owen, who left in nineteen eighty one to form the Social Democratic Party, which then later merged with the Liberals. And so you had Um, Up until Blair, really, and his close relationship with Paddy Ashdown, the the late leader of the Liberal Democrats, a fatal um, division in in the centre-left, which helped the Tories stay in power. But the key, of course, was that Tony Blair himself was a centrist, and and proudly so, and talked a lot about uh, occupying the centre-ground and Labour being the party of the centre-ground and the party of... You know the British people as a whole, and he was quite happy to borrow uh, methods and techniques from Thatcher. But the politics was different. It, it built upon Thatcherism, but it had a you know a strong social justice dimension. And it seemed at that point that centrism had prevailed. And I remember vividly Tories in that sort of high season of Blairism really thinking, can we ever actually? this person and this sort of new consensus because it's got the lot it's got strong leadership it's got social justice public investment but it's also clearly regarded with respect by the the key individuals in global capitalism you know how 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 does tourism get around this so that that was a very strong moment for the centre-left Starmer is and indeed, as we're recording this, it, it's in the wake of a, a reshuffle of the Labour Shadow Cabinet, which has really reasserted the Blairite
1: faction within the Labour Party. He's got, he's got more Blairites than Blair, somebody quipped yesterday. That's a, I yeah. mean,
2: that's actually probably true. <laughs> I mean, other than Angela Rayner and Ed Miliband, all of the prominent positions in the, in the Shadow Cabinet are now occupied by people I would call Blairite. And that matters because we're... In the countdown to an election, we don't know when it's going to be. But it's clearly the case that if Starmer does win, we're going to have a neo-Blairite government with all that that implies.
1: Let's go back to 2008, the financial crash, because th- that's really what you pinpoint as the moment where the, the centrists were caught flat-footed and didn't really predict the fallout from that seismic event.
2: Yes, it, it was. it was and I think remains a seismic event. Um, the the tremors of which are still felt and the questions posed by it are have not been fully answered because it indicated that um, A, there was a strong element of casino capitalism in globalisation and also there were radical inequalities not only between nations, which I think everyone knew, but also within them. And I'm not sure um, the people we had, we've been describing as centrists were fully aware how strongly um, those who'd been to use the phrase left behind felt about this and crucially that this had uh, reanimated um, a whole new politics of belonging identity culture. Um, The phrase uh, politics is downstream from culture became uh, mainstream in that period and centrism as it had constituted itself up until that moment was not good talking about questions of belonging and identity and culture which it felt nervous around because its taste was and it's a good thing its taste was for evidence and facts and rules and the use of economic data but it was fairly illiterate in those areas and again you look at the inability of the democratic party to see that Trump was for real. You look at the inability of the Remain campaign in 2016 to see that Leave had tapped into something that had nothing to do with economic advantage and everything to do with a sense of fighting back against a perceived betrayal, against notional elites, against cultural decay, against being disenfranchised. And this was a new politics, and it is a politics that remains extremely strong in the in America and in Europe and elsewhere. And centrists have yet to, I think, fully engage with it. They're getting better, but it is a slow process because the centrist default position is always to regard politics as a branch of economics, essentially.
1: After the break, we'll talk more about the missing centre in our politics. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd, of course, encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect... Across the newsletters, web, app, and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. So please visit prospectmagazine, all one word, dot co dot uk and subscribe now. So the right went off to Brexit and nationalism, populism. The left went off to Occupy Wall Street, Corbynism, and identity politics. And the centre was really hollowed out. I mean, who who were the centrist politicians? I mean, they, they, when when Johnson got in, he really purged the party. Of yes,
2: the, and and that was a that I think was a to go back to the first question you asked me was a, an extremely important and almost. Leninist move really uh, or Stalinist move it, it it was a brutal moment the pur- the, pur- the, pur- the purging of almost all the key centre-right figures from at least from the the commons um, there are none left I mention in the piece a, a very interesting new volume of uh, essays edited by David Gork who's an excellent person and very thoughtful former cabinet minister about the centre right, and it's got some great pieces in it by Rory Stewart and others, Danny Finkelstein, Dominic, you know, Dominic uh, you know, so it's, it's a really impressive lineup. But the most one of the salient features of the volume is it doesn't have a single MP, in, in, they've in all, the all been purged, they've or, all been or, purged. Or, or have left, or have left. Yeah. So you have a character like Ed Vasey, who was um, is the absolute sort of classic One Nation Tory, now in the, in the Lords, and many others like him.
1: So uh that that's a grim picture that you paint of centrism and, and its prospects but um but the, the reason I, I like your piece is that uh you don't think it's finished you think it's a cause that's worth fighting for I do um, and
2: and I, and I um I think as long as it doesn't present itself as a restorationist project um as long as it doesn't position itself as as um kind of condescending to the electorate and saying, right, now you've got that out of your system, we can go back to reading the FT every morning and, and, and thinking about uh, PowerPoints. That, that would be a disaster. And specifically, I think there's a, there's a sort of preliminary issue in our membership of the EU perspective, because, you know, I am, surprise, surprise, very keen on rejoining. But I don't think that should be the, the primary offer of new centrism. Because it will immediately trigger a sense that this is essentially a heritage organization trying to just wipe out the last seven years, and it will look like a relitigation of twenty sixteen, which is the last thing a forward facing movement wants to do, so absolutely a close relationship with the e u laying the ground for what will be if and when it happens a very complex process rejoining you know, the European Union will not be a straightforward matter internationally, let alone domestically. So that should not be the first sort of, you know, proposition number one. I think what's extremely important too, is that I hear a lot about, and I have heard for so many years about the pendulum, the pendulum swinging from left to right and back back again. And one hears it now, which is that Thirteen years of Tory rule, the last sort of phase of which have been comically disastrous. and again, we're recording this in the midst of yet another kind of fiasco this time over aerated concrete rock in, in in not only schools but hospitals and other buildings that are part of the public estate. and there's a sense sense of an ending, sense of a of of a period in in conservative history drawing to a close. But the victory of it's not enough to expect the electorate to sort of swing back towards the centre. That That's not how, certainly not how modern politics works. Modern politics is much more volatile. So you have to assume that you're fighting, which I think you should anyway, but you have to assume you're fighting for every vote. You're fighting for every seat. You're not relying on some, uh, you know, the arc of history, so to speak, with, uh, whose existence I'm increasingly sceptical about. Um so so that kind of hard hardcore realization I think is essential. But the, the the good stuff is is to sort of look at the scene and do what successful political movements always do, which is that's, what are the questions. So in 1979 Thatcher identified the key questions, which was sort out the economy, uh tame the unions and fight the cold war. In 1994 Blair said we need to uh, marry social justice to uh, capitalism, that, which was the right question, because people were, were fed up with the harshness of conservatism, but wanted to maintain economic competence in which Gordon Brown incarnated. What are the questions now? Well, they're, they're not what they were back then and not like what they were in 1997 and this is where I think that that there is a limit to the idea of a a neo-Blairite centrism which is that the questions now are much bigger they involve long-term vision they're questions like what do you do about the climate crisis what do you do about raising more money without for the public services without impoverishing people in their income what do you do about regulating technology what do you do about the whole question of what what the Tories have called rather feebly leveling up but you know is actually a real issue the 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 gross inequalities between different parts of the country and within and even within small parts of the country within a a town like London the inequalities are huge and and no one has yet really embraced this so there's and then we move on to the the challenge of global security post-Ukraine and so on and so on there are there are limitless social care I should have mentioned there's a There's a really, really vivid and clear list of practical, crunchy policy questions, which is what centrists are good at and I think that if they can be honest uh, about the difficulty involved because one of the scourges of populism is a disinclination to be honest it's It's not an honest approach to politics, it's all about blame, which is why Rishi sunak. Um, who looks like a centrist and ought to be a centrist, given his pedigree as a sort of um, Stanford Business School, you know, Russell Group university graduate and so on, a banker. Actually, he has he has borrowed some of the the less reputable aspects of populism with the "Stop the Boats" campaign because it's a it's an easy win way of blaming helpless refugees for problems that have nothing to do with them. I think that. That approach, though it, it has, a, it has a, a certain amount of operational effectiveness, in the end it doesn't solve anything. And I think that it, it, it may be reaching the end of the road, which is where practical the, the practical radicalism of the true centrist comes in. But it requires a level of honesty, which really is going to be very hard because we have reached a point of polarisation in political culture where being candid with the electorate is very difficult.
1: What can these new centrists learn from identity politics?
2: Well, a lot of... I mean, to talk about... You know, I'm happy to identify as a liberal in every sense. And a lot of the people I admire and talk to are very, very hostile to identity politics. And the reasons they cite are partly correct, which is I don't, a lot of identity politics is just about digital scolding, and endless arguments about who's entitled to speak about what. And this is, that, that is a dead end for the progressive movement. However, I think it's, it's not enough to just dismiss the social justice movements that emerged in the last decade, Me Too, BLM, the environmental, the environmentalist direct action groups, and so on, because what they all have in common is that a, they are a reproach liberalism and universalism and meritocracy because what they're saying is you know those that approach to the world has not succeeded in helping us as groups you know the reason we are to take blm the reason that we are doing this is because all your claims to be colorblind to be um you know indifferent to ethnicity don't stop in america cops from shooting us and in this country you know the figures are quite clear about the stop and search being much 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 more affecting young black males and so on i mean that, that 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 is a there are a series of pathologies that they represent that that no progressive movement centrist or otherwise can i think honestly ignore i like Stacey abrams the 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 american democrats formulation of an identity conscious progressivism so she's not asking for politics to be cantonized into a sort of series of tribes but she is saying you can't be left of center anymore or indeed centrist without acknowledging the force of some of these arguments and and taking stock of them and absorbing that into your legislative program and I think that's right.
1: Your your final recommendation for these new centrists is don't be wimpish and you hold up as Caroline Lucas as the model of passionate centrism.
2: Yes I mean I think there is a kind of there's a perception that, which may be fair, may be unfair, but politics isn't fair, that um, centrists are wusses. And I suppose what I mean by that is that is that they're seen as doing a number of things. One is just being equidistant between two points, which is not an exciting position, and particularly uh, pointless when the two positions are, are so far apart in a polarised situation such as ours trying to sort of hover an equidistant point is is, is a, a guarantee only of neurosis. I think that there's a perception that centrists hedge their bets. I think there's a perception that they, they lack conviction, that they're bloodlessly technocratic. And all of this is important to avoid, which is not to say that you dump evidence and facts, that you dump caution, that you dump the, the formation of policy on the basis of careful deliberation and fact. But I think it there is no doubt, I mean I say in the piece, feelings don't care about your fact, traversing the, the you know the famous right wing notion. Um, which is that 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 emotionalism and narrative and performance are now a really important part of politics and to ignore that is simply to declare oneself redundant. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that Keir Starmer should follow Trump and get in the wrestling ring or follow the Republican candidate Vivek Rawaswamy and rap at state fairs. But the new centrism has to be more than the, the sort of logic of the seminar room. It has to have emotional and rhetorical power. And I think it's interesting because... Starmer has confounded us at every stage. I'm I'm not willing to dump on him quite as much as other people because he has taken a party that was destroyed. There is no other word in 2019 in less than four years to the brink of office. No one has ever done anything like that. And one must, you know, also record that he at least a year of that was spent in lockdown in, in pandemic mode. So, He's doing something right and he has gone through a series of iterations. So we'll see if he does become prime minister, whether he he steps forward, he steps up to the plate, but he has to. It won't be enough to say, right, the, the crazy Tories are gone and now we can return to a sort of technocratic style of government. That won't be enough. There are people out there who, I mean, as I say in the piece, you know, telling someone whose child is hungry to be reasonable is, is not a... a <laughs> A a wise approach, and the stakes now are very high. And centrists need to acknowledge that and acknowledge the sense of grievance and the scale of the challenge. I think they they don't need to be afraid of being seen as radical. I think that there's a sense that um, people say often what we need now is a a period of boring leadership. I don't. I don't think that's credible. I don't think people do want boring leadership. I think what they want desperately is to be inspired and to have a form of politics that inspires them and, crucially, that they can trust. And I think that there's a lot that a new Labour government, a Starmer-led government, can do to clean up Westminster, actually, at at very low cost, because the first and biggest challenge for him and for his colleagues will be to renew that trust because it is in the gutter.
1: Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and for this fascinating discussion and for a fascinating piece which is on the cover of the Prospect magazine that's now on the newsstands. For listeners at home, if you enjoyed this podcast, why don't you go and grab a copy of that latest issue of uh, Prospect, which includes uh, Matt's essay plus Lizzie Porter on how uh, Bashar Assad has been brought back into the fold. We've got Barry Eichengreen on the future of globalisation and Samira Shackle on uh, Norma Percy, who is the best documentary maker I bet most of you have never heard of. And while you're here, why not subscribe to Prospect Lives, which is a monthly series of audio diaries from our family of seven writers uh, at the back of the magazine, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley.